Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the Episcopalian Brent and Ecclesiastical Ooh, Forest. Why the uh, biblical terms, Dylan? Yeah, what's um, going on with that? I, um, I, I have no idea. It has nothing to do with the topic of today's episode. Liar. Bef- I know, I know. <laughs> But before we get into that, we have a few announcements. One, we want to apologize for uh, skipping a week because I had a little thing called a viral upper respiratory infection. It was great. And we had a little thing called Thanksgiving. And we had a little (laughs) thing called Thanksgiving. So, uh, yeah, I was uh, cooking and spreading my disease to all my relatives, and I hope they get sick as soon as possible. That should be happening quite soon now. And on the brighter side of things, we have a new... Patron, Destin Brown, thank you so much for your patronage. If you visit us at patreon.com slash ordinary, you too can become a patron. $1, you get a shout out on the show, and $5 a month, you get access to our monthly bonus episodes. Okay, so what is it we're talking about today, Dylan? All right, so I did fib did. earlier, and uh, you know, with, with the nicknames, because we do have another episode dedicated to kind of alt Christianity, the kind of the small (laughs) cracks and crevices of the Christian landscape. And we're talking about a little book called None Dare Call It Heresy, Spotlight on the Life and Teachings of John Calvin by Bob Kirkland, D.D. And he officially goes by Bob. It says (laughs) Bob on the cover of the book. And it is a evangelicals take on the teachings of John Calvin. So it's a Christianity fight, you know, Christian on Christian speech violence. And (laughs) we just, we just had to talk about it. I mean, I I find it to be the best book that I found on this on for our show since the uh, UFO engineering book. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. We'll we'll leave it. We'll leave it to the listeners to decide if Bob Kirkland truly is the new Paul Potter. That's right. Um, I know very different subject matter too, or well, we don't know. We'll see. Uh, maybe, maybe we'd, we'd have to put our eBooks in the dumpster, Dylan. <laughs> I actually got the physical book on this one. Oh, you the got the physical book. Yeah. Ooh, fancy. Very nice. So let's start at the introduction. And so, as the title suggests, Kirkland is going to argue that Calvinism isn't just wrong; it's heretical. Another gospel, as he keeps calling it. The Bible takes a strong stance against heresy, as you can imagine. But sadly, <laughs> heresy today is coddled in the name of unity. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, her- heresy is just some green-haired college kid SJW. Come on, we, we know. It's so sad. We just pretend it's not a big deal. We pretend you're not going to hell. Everyone gets heretical. a trophy. Everyone goes to heaven. Oh, yeah, God, it's, it's the participation trophy of the afterlife. Exactly. Oh, God. Now, you might be worried, but let's not get too worried, because even though Calvinism is heretical, that doesn't mean all Calvinists go to hell. That would be silly. However, quote, the Calvinist path to salvation becomes more difficult, if not impossible, to those (laughs) who learn and follow its teachings. So Calvinists don't go to hell, but it might be impossible to receive salvation if you're a Calvinist. Got it, got it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I just hope I'm predetermined not to be a Calvinist. I think that's... Yeah, same here, same here. I'm actually just going to pretend being a Calvinist is just being on Team Calvin of the Calvin and Hobbes comics. So mm. that's how I'm going to deal with this whole series. Oh, that's a good <laughs> You keep telling yourself that. Meanwhile, you're on the path to hell. According to Kirkland, 
the basic mistake that Calvin made was to not base his theology on scripture, which seems to be a bad mistake. That's a problem. Instead, Calvinists have to change the meaning of words in the Bible to justify their theology. Okay, now, so, you know, we've been dancing around it. What is Calvin's theology? What is the kind of essence of Calvinism? Well, Kirkland sums up the gist in a single sentence, quote, John Calvin taught that God will be glorified by bringing billions of people into this world for no other purpose than having them burn in hell for eternity. Ooh. I mean, to be fair, Jesus basically said this, though, quote, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Yeah, but see, you're missing the point. They couldn't find the small gate and the narrow road because they're assholes and it's totally their <laughs> fault. That's the oh. difference. That's the difference. Now, all this means that Calvinism is fatalistic. It denies the role of free will and choice in salvation and makes knowledge that one is saved impossible. Kirkland concludes, quote, if that's not heresy, then what is? <laughs> As was mentioned, Kirkland tells us that Calvin got off on the wrong foot because he misreads words in the Bible. So clearly identifying those mistakes would be the first place to start. Right. That should be first on the agenda. Makes sense. But it's not. The, the first order on the agenda is to bash Calvin's hero, Augustine. As an early church father, Augustine has a pretty big reputation in the world of Christian thinkers. He wrote The Confessions and City of God, after all. But Kirkland identifies Augustine's main contribution in a slightly different way. Quote, Augustine has sometimes been referred to as the father of the Inquisition because he set the precedent that force and suppression must be used to stop and control those who were deemed heretics. And FYI, using phrases like has sometimes been referred to as ranks pretty high on my list of bullshit phrases referred to as by whom yeah, citation please but then again i've heard a lot of people are saying that the words has sometimes referred to as are sometimes referred to by many people i've heard that i think that's true i think i've heard that as well yeah i heard i mean i heard it from you yeah and you know what we're getting off track here because sadly the mother of the inquisition she never gets any recognition it's always about the father. Mm, yeah, exactly. There you are, Brent, fighting for those women's rights. Thank you. Thank God. But this isn't even the worst of it, because as Kirkland notes, Augustine's theological views, quote, line up more with Catholicism than Ooh. biblical Christianity. Uh -oh. So <laughs> Catholicism is neither biblical nor Christian. So sorry, said of a contest, your whole debate is pointless. You're not even Christians anymore. There's nothing better than, so, than Christians saying, oh, th those Christians are not Christians. <laughs> I always, always enjoy that. Now, what are some of these non-biblical, non-Christian beliefs? Let's start with Augustine's view on infant baptism. Quote, unbaptized infants not only cannot enter the kingdom of God, but cannot have everlasting life. You know, notice too, Augustine conveniently leaves out if self-baptized infants will be allowed into the kingdom of God. I don't know if that uh, is a thing, but should they be. can do it themselves. Yeah. You'd have to consecrate the baby as a priest first before it's baptized. I don't know if you can do that, but you know, that's the kind of innovative thinking the church needs to really, you know, modernize <laughs> in the 21st century. Augustine also thought the Virgin Mary was sinless, but that dope. purgatory was totally a real thing. And that salvation was impossible outside the Catholic Church. Any mention of the baby Mary, by chance? No, no, there is no mention of uh, baby Mary. And there's no mention of baby Mary being baptized outside the Catholic Church, technically. Uh, you know, so there's a whole lot of problems going on for that lady. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. 
Now, given all this, Kirkland thinks it's highly amusing that Calvin was such an Augustine fanboy. After all, quote, according to Augustine, anyone outside the Catholic Church is going to hell. Did Calvin not realize that would have to include him? Oh, he got him. He got him. Totally got him. Got him. So how do we make sense of this? Well, it makes more sense if you realize, as Kirkland coyly suggests, that Calvin never really became a Protestant at all, but was really a crypto-Catholic. Well, let's be honest, though, it's still better than being a crypto-Lutheran. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the bottom basement. If you call me a crypto-Catholic again, I'll punch you in the goddamn face. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kirkland makes the suggestion, by being skeptical that Calvin actually converted to Christianity, i.e. stopped being a Catholic. That's the translation there. He notes that there is no, quote, clear testimony of his salvation experience and even puts conversion in scare quotes. Ooh. Well, all salvation experiences must be witnessed, then documented, or else they do not count. That's just gospel. Further, Calvin's most famous work, Institutes of the Christian Religion, was written only two years after he, quote, left the Catholic Church, i.e., quote, became an actual Christian. <laughs> and he remained on the payroll of the Catholic Church for at least a year after supposedly leaving. Hmm. Kirkland has a source for this last claim, and while it isn't at the Joseph Mercola level of citing the exact <laughs> same article in a different place, it's Classic still, man. it's pretty good. It's a pretty good use of citation. The source is Dave Hunt's book, What Love Is This? It's simply another anti-Calvinist making the same claim. That's the authoritative source. I'm going to use the authoritative source of my own brain again, just as I did with Joseph Mercola, and say that's bullshit. Yep. Yep, I think that's right. Actually, guys, I have to confess something. I, I'm sorry I, I didn't let you guys know this, but I'm a huge Dave Hunt fanboy. I own all of his <laughs> books. Sure, What Love Is This is a classic, but my favorites still are A Cup of Trembling, a very good one, Seduction of Christianity. That's a good a one. A Cup of Trembling? What? <laughs> I'll have a cup of trembling. Um, this this, a woman is, this is if you beast. don't want... It, it, if you don't want um, Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard at like full, <laughs> full potency, you just get a cup of trembling. Yeah, when you're wearing the armor, doses. when you're wearing the full armor of God and you go to the God Starbucks, you get a cup of trembling. I think that completes the set. A cup of trembling. That's what that, that's what uh, Isaac drank from that morning that Abraham took him into the woods. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, Brent, what, go ahead. What, what other great books has this man written? All right, so some of the other classics, I think I mentioned The Seduction of Christianity. And then mm. here's another one here, A Woman Rides the Beast. So Isn't little, that King Kong? Little uh, Fifty Shades or something. Yeah, that's a revelation. If you check out our Revelation series, yes. you'll learn all about a woman riding a beast. And then here, here's my first personal favorite here. I'm looking at it right now. It's called Yoga in the Body of Christ. Those are all actual <laughs> titles. There's one thing I know about the body of Christ. He was capable of touching his toes. I know that for a fact. <laughs> And what's more interesting to me about this source, uh, besides that it's just bullshit, is that Hunt isn't coy like Kirkland, because in his book, he kind of just directly says that John Calvin was a devout Roman Catholic. Oh. He doesn't, he's not coy about it, <laughs> wow. he just goes straight for it. He didn't even get his source right. So we're done bashing Calvin for his Augustine worship and doubtful conversion away from the heresy of Catholicism, so now we can move on to his arguments for predestination. I, I think we can do that, Yeah. Um, but we can't. We can't oh. do it. We need to go over all the people that John Calvin got set on fire. Because oh. apparently this is something he did a few times. In fact, quote, 
there are more than 36 executions with which Calvin was directly or indirectly involved, which isn't good. So Kirkland gets this number from Bernard Cotret's book, Calvin, a Biography. Now, who is Bernard Cotret? Well, Kirkland gives a short biography, quote, a university professor in France. <laughs> That's Jesus. it. I bet Rick Santorum would consider this guy the snobbiest of all snipes. Then. Oh, oh my yeah. God. A university Beyond. professor in France. Oh, you got to eat freedom fries at, uni- at Liberty University just to wash <laughs> the snobbiness <laughs> off of you. Cotret notes that Calvin had a lot of power when he was in Geneva. As Kirkland puts it, quote, when Calvin denounced someone as a heretic, often the denouncement came for criticizing or even just questioning Calvin's teachings. That person was hunted down. Jesus. Kirkland offers a couple of examples of people persecuted by Calvin. The first is Jacques Gruet. Quote, Gruet, a known opponent of Calvin, was arrested and tortured twice a day for a month in an effort to get him to confess to the accusations against him. Then on July 26, 1547, he was tied to a stake, his feet were nailed to it, and he was beheaded. Oh, God. I mean, the only thing worse than a twice-a-day torturing is a one-day feet-nail-beheading combo. Oof. Yeah, Oof. I believe at the salon they call that a mani petty heady I think it's the triple threat <laughs> at the, uh, the, the salon there. Another example is Michael Servetus, who had the audacity of sending Calvin a copy of his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, heavily annotated with criticisms. This led Calvin to say of Servetus, quote, I hope the death sentence will at least be passed upon him. If he come and my influence can avail, I shall not suffer him to depart alive. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Although in this case, it would be the Genevan Inquisition. (laughs) They didn't have the Hague back then. Unfortunately for Servetus, Calvin got his way, quote, Servetus was burned at the stake. He was screaming as he was literally baked alive from the feet upward and suffered the heat of the flames for 30 minutes before finally succumbing to one of the most painful and brutal methods of death possible. Man, 30 minutes. That's that's pretty 30 minutes. And also, by the way, uh, Servetus had his own book of theology and it was strapped to his chest while he was being burned alive. Wow. (laughs) That now that's the worst reaction to a book review I have ever seen. Like that is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, zero stars <laughs> author should be burned alive and their twitter account deleted in that order <laughs> clearly kirkland is very moved by the suffering of these folks that were persecuted by calvin but he still has time to get a little jab in there <laughs> <laughs> michael servetus definitely had some unbiblical teachings such as his rejection of the trinity so. oh jesus christ kirkland too soon too soon I mean, in fairness, it has been several hundred That's years. True. I don't know how long. I don't know how long we have to wait on that one. And too, yeah, and too soon usually applies to a joke. He's not joking. Yeah, he's, That's a good point. He's like, look, Calvin kind of had a point, but you don't burn people. Come on. Now, how can we defend? Is there any way to defend Calvin here? Well, I think there's one defense. It's that John Calvin he just wanted Servetus to be beheaded. He didn't want to set him on fire. Well, that's fine then. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. Kirkland next wants to compare what John Calvin did to what the followers of Christ did. Because after all, they're the example we should be following. So just take a look at what happened to Stephen. He dealt with something slightly more harsh than Calvin. Quote, Stephen's persecutors did not write a note on the margin of his sermon outline 
they were smashing his head in with rocks. Uh, you know, actually, though, I think that's just really just antiquated uh, trepanning, really. Mm, I mean, these yeah. poor souls just didn't quite have the advanced knowledge yet of how to become permanently high. Well, as we all know, death is the permanent high. So yeah, maybe uh, they had a different way of doing it. Sure. Despite all this, Stephen asked God to forgive them rather than hoping they would be hooked to death. So a slightly better example than Calvin. Now, given all this history, given all of this nasty, nasty stuff John Calvin is involved with, Kirkland asks himself, what spirit controlled John Calvin? Quote, the primary teaching in Calvinism is the teaching on election, in that the majority of people God created, he did not elect to save, nor did he love them. In fact, he hated them from before they were even born. Now, this is what John Calvin thinks of God. So perhaps Calvin felt the same way towards the unwashed masses of humanity, which made it easier to justify torturing and murdering several dozen of them. In his sly fashion, Kirkland goes one step further, quote, It is not hard to believe that John Calvin was under the influence of some other spirit than the Holy Spirit. So what does (laughs) that mean? He was possessed by a damn demon. That's what he's saying. uh, He's a damn demon. I'm thinking Pazuzu. That's the one I'm thinking. So after insinuating that Calvin was possessed by a demon and that he's nothing more than a shill for Big Augustine, (laughs) Kirkland finally gets to criticizing Calvin's theology. We could finally, you know, dig in. And as we said at the top, Kirkland's basic criticism is that Calvinism only makes sense if you change the meaning of words in the Bible or take them out of context, which no Christian has ever done. (laughs) For example, take the phrase, whosoever will, from Revelations 22, 17, quote, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So it looks like it's open to everybody, whoever will, whoever is open to, you know, becoming a Christian gets to do it. Well, according to Calvinists, they say that whosoever will really means whosoever God wills. Yeah, you see there? So it's not open to everybody. That's how they're changing things up. Adding words. They're just adding words. They're just adding words. That's how, that's the only way this works. (laughs) I might have believed it if whosoever was capitalized, but it's not. Oh. If the W was capitalized. Yeah, that's, that's the, uh, I think they refer to that as the big whosoever. I think that's it, you know. (laughs) The big whosoever upstairs. Another case of Calvinist reinterpretation is John 3.16, quote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, how did Calvinists deal with this? Well, the Calvinist Arthur Pink has a specific kind of reinterpretation of this Bible verse, quote, The world in John 3.16 must, in the final analysis, refer to the world of God's people. So again, They're not saying it refers to everybody, just the elect. Let's get into more of this stuff. Calvinists are also big time into the sovereignty of God. They're big into that word. They think that because God is sovereign, he has to determine every little thing that happens. And thus we can't have free will because he, you know, he chose, you know, you ate a bologna sandwich on Tuesday. That's because God made you eat a bologna sandwich on Tuesday. And God's the original sovereign citizen too. He is. He's the the ultimate sovereign citizen. No rules. (laughs) No maritime court is going to keep the savior down. 
But since Kirkland notes that sovereignty just means, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary, that God has the, quote, absolute right to do all things according to his own pleasure, then, quote, we see God is no less sovereign because he, according to his own good pleasure, gives man a free will, making him capable of repenting of his sin and receiving Christ as his savior. Yeah, as long as there's a witness there at this time, then this checks out. Well, so you know, you know we don't need any of that Catholic talk messing up our perfectly fine biblical Christianity. God is witness enough. We don't need to involve any, you know, any, I, you know, notaries I also or any like, of that kind of nonsense. That's right, the big whosoever. I also like this idea of God creating free will just at his own good pleasure. Yeah, it's his own good pleasure. Just he felt like it, you know? It's like he created the platypus in his own good pleasure. He's just like, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It makes me laugh. I'm also going to make murderers. You know, that's kind of, yeah, it's fun. That whole free will thing. Kirkland also makes a curious argument that if Calvinists are going to change world to elect in John 3.16, then they have to do it everywhere in the Bible where that word appears. So if world means elect everywhere, you got to kind of copy, copy F, control F to find and replace world and replace it with elect. But that, it turns out, would be mega stupid. So consider John 15.18 through 19. This is the original Bible verse, quote, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, if the Calvinists had their way, that would be translated like this, quote, If the elect hate you, ye know that the elect hated me before the elect hated you. If ye were of the elect, the elect would love his own elect. But because ye are not of the elect, but I have chosen you out of the elect, therefore the elect hateth you, which uh, doesn't make as much sense, you might think. I'm sorry, I'm a Brentist too, and as such, we always change the words hate, hated, or hateth in the Bible to fuck, fucked, or fucketh. Fucketh. So you gotta go fucketh. Yeah. Um, fucketh. Yeah, I, um, I think that's also heretical. Um, I'm sorry to report. Um, <laughs> you know, you gotta stick with the Bible as it's been translated yeah, by right. a particular set of people. <laughs> Now, you might be thinking that this argument's a little unfair. You know, even if you don't think, you know, Arthur Pink's translation of World to Elect in that one case is good, you know, words have multiple meanings. And so Calvinists might just be saying that some uses of the word world should be read as elect. Nope, can't be. Well, it's funny <laughs> because it turns out that Bob Kirkland himself agrees with that assessment. Quote, <laughs> the word world is found over 240 times in the Bible. A few times, the Greek word obviously reveals different meanings. Wow. So, okay. So since this completely nullifies the previous <laughs> argument he was just making. Cell phone. He takes a much simpler approach, declaring, quote, however, the word world never means Calvin's so-called elect. Never. <laughs> Jesus. And Kirkland isn't done with Arthur Pink because another example of Arthur Pink screwing up the meaning of words to fit his Calvinist agenda is this, quote, This scripture does not declare that it is God's pleasure to give repentance, Acts 5.31, to all men everywhere. This is kind of a line of Arthur Pink that Kirkland quotes. Now, what does Acts 5.31 say anyway? It says this, quote, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Kirkland points out that Peter and the apostles were addressing the high priest and council who were Jewish. 
He then argues that since Pink was using this verse to say that it is not God's pleasure to give repentance to men everywhere, that means Pink inadvertently thinks that only Jews get saved. In other words, quote, Hence, all Gentiles will end up in hell. That would include Pink himself. And because there is ultimately no free will in Calvinism, there is nothing anyone can do about it. Man, no one tell Richard Spencer about this Jew-exclusive uh, afterlife. He's going to be really pissed. Yeah, I really hope he's the only non-Jew <laughs> who goes to heaven that would be great. in that case, because that would be that would be beautiful. Now, all of this is both confusing and hilarious, but it gets even better because I looked up the source, which is the most dangerous thing you can do. And Arthur Pink was not at all talking about Acts 531 at all. That's only where he got that phrase, give repentance. He was actually talking about Acts 1730. And I'll quote the entire paragraph just to show you that I am not taking him out of context. Quote, again, if God has chosen only certain ones to salvation, why are we told that God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent? Acts 1730. Again, that's what he's actually talking about in this paragraph. That God commandeth all men to repent is but the enforcing of his righteous claims as the moral governor of the world. How could he do less, seeing that all men everywhere have sinned against him? Furthermore, that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent argues the universality of creature responsibility. But this scripture does not declare that it is God's pleasure to give repentance, Acts 5.31, everywhere. That the Apostle Paul did not believe God gave repentance to every soul is clear from his words in 2 Timothy 2.25, In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. I have noticed, yeah, there's this trend, right? Every time, and we don't look up every claim that people make that we cover, but when, when we do, we find out it's usually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Without fail. Because when you, when you read it in context, what Pink is saying is that although all men must repent, that doesn't mean all men will be given repentance by God. And it doesn't mean, so they're all kind of commanded to repent, but that doesn't mean God like accepts it. He doesn't, you know, give repentance in that way. That seems clearly what he's saying. What's even funny is because I was looking at this Arthur Pink book and Arthur Pink he actually offers the same kind of argument as Kirkland, but in favor of Calvinism, in favor of predestination, namely that he thinks people who deny Calvinism have to deliberately change the meaning of words in the Bible. <laughs> and I just it was too juicy, delicious awesome. irony to, for me to not include this bit. So here's just one paragraph in the book, quote, this is from Acts 13, 48. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And Pink says this about the quote, every artifice of human ingenuity has been employed to blunt the sharp edge of this scripture and to explain away the obvious meaning of these words, but it has been employed in vain, though nothing will ever be able to reconcile this and similar passages to the mind of the natural man. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Here we learn four things. First, that believing is the consequence and not the cause of God's decree. Second, that a limited number only are ordained to eternal life. For if all men without exception were thus ordained by God, then the words as many as are a meaningless qualification. Third, that this ordination of God is not to mere external privileges, but to eternal life, not to service, but to salvation itself. Fourth, that all as many as, not one less, who are thus ordained by God to eternal life will most certainly 
believe. Oh man, atheism is so much easier than this. That's just yes. <laughs> very complicated. There's a lot less reading, which is kind of nice. So I just love that. So it's a it's a dictionary fight at this point. I think, and you know, I <laughs> love a dic- I love a good dictionary fight. Christian on Christian dictionary fight. That's really kind of what this is all about. You redefine words. No, you redefine words. The key is to redefine what redefining words means. And then you're oh, no. then you're off to the races. That's when both Christians team up on the postmodernist guy and beat him up. <laughs> <laughs> so another problem that Kirkland has with Calvinism is that he thinks it relies on a foolish analogy. One of the reasons Calvinists believe in the whole predestination thing is that people suck so hard that they can't just choose to accept Christ as their savior. Thankfully, then, God is nice enough to elect some of us losers to achieve everlasting life. So we all suck, and God is like, man, some, I'm just going to, some of you need help. I can't help you all, or I won't, but I'll help some of you, because lordy me, y'all are losers. So why do Calvinists believe this? Well, again, Kirkland thinks it's all based on a bad analogy. Quote, Ephesians 2 1 says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Calvinists say, Since he is dead, it is impossible for him to believe. This is a foolish analogy. The Bible is referring here to spiritual death, not physical death. Ooh. No, actually, I think the Bible is referring to mental death here. Ooh, it could be a mental death. He could be in a coma. Kirkland even gives examples where the Calvinist line makes no sense. In Acts 15 30, the Philippian jailer asks Paul what he has to do to be saved. Kirkland notes, quote, Paul did not say, you could do nothing to be saved. You are dead. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It would have been metal as fuck, though, if Paul would have said that first line instead. Yeah, you could do nothing to be <laughs> saved. You oh are God. dead. That's yeah, we need a Calvinist death metal band. It really <laughs> goes together. I mean, death metal. You know, if you're not in the elect, you're dead. So the unelect, that's the Calvinist death metal band. As you say, they could open up for a set of a contest rock band, but that is impossible. The crypto Lutheran crypto Catholic <laughs> tour. That's what I want to see. Also, Isaiah 118 says this, quote, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Ah, I like this. The Lord was the original philosopher. Yeah, it is the really person. nice. I like this picture of God. And Kirkland explains this line In all bolds, for some reason, this is the only bolded part of the book, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Quote, That's really important. (laughs) This is not written to physically dead people. A physically dead man cannot reason anything. It is written to spiritually dead, unsafe people concerning salvation. If a spiritually dead man is never capable of reasoning spiritual things, why would God command him to do so? (laughs) Good point. Good point. Good, exactly. This... This foolish analogy causes Calvinists to get salvation backwards. Because we are dead, we must be regenerated by God's grace before we are capable of repenting and receiving salvation. But this is all wrong. We become born again by repenting. Mm. Kirkland sums up the Calvinist view nicely. Quote, Calvinists teach that man cannot repent or believe the gospel until he is born again. They teach that this new birth is brought about by God who chooses certain elect individuals and regenerates them, making them capable of believing. They say man does not have a free will by which he is able to come to Christ for salvation. But Kirkland has, he thinks, shown that this contradicts the Bible. So he offers you a choice, quote, Will you believe the godly men who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
Or will you believe a man who wrote under the inspiration of the Catholic Bishop Augustine and who was filled with hatred for those who disagreed with him? Mm. Guys, guys, we, we better just side with Calvin on this one. We do not want to be burnt alive with our podcast episodes strapped to our chests, <laughs> which would just be our iPhones, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or just the servers. They'll strap, they'll like th- throw all the Libsyn servers into a pile and light those on fire. <laughs> okay, so... We've learned about Calvinism, you know, Calvinists changing the meaning of words. They've got a bad analogy. And beyond all that, they don't believe in free will. But Kirkland has something to say about that. And Forrest has more on that topic. All right. Yes, we're going to go over proofs for free will, according to Kirkland. Kirkland reminds us that even though we're a bunch of dastardly sinners that are certainly not divine, that doesn't mean mankind is all that bad. It's not like uber super Catholicism or Calvinism where everyone just hardcore sucks, as Dylan said. Yeah, no, we're pretty good. Quote, (laughs) even though Adam fell, man still has a soul and man still has the ability to choose and to reason. These attributes were not taken from man when Adam fell, as is very evident by simple observation and quote. But I'm going to have to disagree with Kirkland. Surely my observations tell me that in 2019 America, our ability to reason is non-existent. Yeah, and this, was, uh, this wasn't yeah. written too long ago. I nope. mean, wasn't this written just uh, last year? Yep. Yeah, so I mean, Kirkland should also have those observations. I mean, maybe he's observing other people, but... At least since yeah. 2015, you should have known this. At least. For Kirkland, free will is comprised of two essential ingredients which go hand in hand the ability to reason, and choice-making. Since Calvinism denies choice-making, it denies reason. And if you deny reason, then God's grace is diminished. Quote, In Scripture, God commands the sinner to reason, to choose, and to repent. God's grace operates in our lives in a viable, active way, not a passive way. Extreme grace. Yeah, the Grace X games. So I like God's grace here because it's basically it's basically like having a high grade on a philosophy paper because <laughs> you got to reason, you got to choose. And I certainly had to bestow some grace on quite a few students I taught over the years. So I kind of I can see I can see how you need the grace. Yeah. So as proof that mankind can will things to happen on their own accord, Kirkland points out that God commands man to do things. Yeah. So apparently the act of commanding something presupposes that that which is being issued the command can will it to be otherwise so the next time you command siri or alexa to do something just remember (laughs) siri and alexa can do otherwise you thought alexa misheard you or malfunctioned when it didn't do what you ordered it to think again oh see another see another example that comes to mind is when hartman commands gomer Pyle to do one lousy (laughs) pull-up he's not actually commanding him at all because clearly Pyle can't do it in fact, Hartman is a dedicated Calvinist. Not a lot of people know this. Because reaching the top of the obstacle is eternal salvation. And as Hartman clearly says, if God wanted you up there, he would have miracled your ass up there by now, wouldn't he? So I think, I think um, actually he had, he wrote a dissertation on theology and it was called God would have miracled your ass up there. Calvin on God's absolute grace. It's a, it's a page turner. I would recommend it. So not only is Calvinism heresy, but according to Kirkland, it's far more perilous than even that. Wow. It's worse than heresy. Yes. Quote, both Adam and Eve made a decision, each of their own free will to disobey God, to suggest as the Calvinists do that God forced them to sin we'd have to change the verse above from thou shall not eat of it to 
I will make you eat of it. This is foolish and makes God the author of sin. It is not only heresy, it is blasphemy. Ah. Now there's a title for a sequel to this book. None dare call it blasphemy. And the author of that book, God. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Simply God. Thus for Kirkland, Calvinism takes the dishonorable title of father of lies away from Satan and bestows it upon God. Kirkland says this is certainly incorrect because the Bible says that it just cannot be so because God is perfectly good, you know, despite God sanctioning slavery and commanding genocide. But we'll ignore that. Yeah, yeah. Don't take it out of context. Quote, he is described as holy, righteous, loving, judging, honest, merciful, perfect God. He is never described as the God of sin. On the contrary, scripture says God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempeth he any man. James 113. That's weird. That's weird to me because in Matthew 4, Jesus is literally tempted by pure evil. I mean, mm. if you consider Satan to be pure evil, I don't know if people do, but yeah, there might be a Trinity is. argument there. Who knows? That's like the Uh-oh. get out of Trinity card. <laughs> I don't really know. But you yeah, know, all maybe. I know is maybe if God tempted more, we would get more people into these churches. You know, what I'm saying like maybe <laughs> that's the route to take. In Kirkland's eschatology, not only is the Holy Spirit a real thing, it can even convict you. Yeah. And anytime the Holy Spirit convicts you, you get a choice, repent or not. And now, you know, we talked about God as the original sovereign citizen. We need some more Christian sovereign citizens around to tell us that the Holy Spirit can yes. only convict your name in a maritime court. It's not convicting <laughs> yep. you. It's just your name. Exactly. This is the most important choice you can make, even more important than choosing to commit the sin itself. This is because true to fundamentalist Christian dogma, it's really faith that matters in the end. It's not like what you do. Quote. If man chooses to trust Christ as Savior, the spirit of man is born again. We read in Ephesians 2, 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. All right. Want more proof that mankind has free will? As if the case hasn't been plainly made? Remember when Adam and Eve were cast from Eden and angels were sent in to guard it with a flaming sword so they couldn't get back in? Yes. Well... What do you say to this brilliant reasoning? Quote, there would have been no need for the cherubims with the flaming sword if man did not have free will. Mm. <laughs> that, that is a great sentence. I love yeah, it. it's incredible. It was for the very reason that man had free will that God had to block the way for Adam to get to the tree of life. What kind of game do the Calvinists think God is playing? <laughs> I don't know. The get past the cherubim with a flaming sword game, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good game. I mean, but let's get let's get real for a second. Even if people didn't have free will, cherubims with flaming swords are fucking rad as shit. So, of course, God wanted one guard in the Garden of Eden. This, this argument doesn't appeal to me at all. Somehow that proves free, to Adam had free will, though. And I know what you're thinking. These are the greatest and most convincing arguments for free will ever. And there can't yeah. be possibly anything further sure. to add. Well, buckle up, because Kirkland isn't finished. Not only could Adam and Eve make choices, but also their children. And here's Ooh. why. Quote, Cain also decided to persecute the one who followed God, even to the death. To say God put it in the heart of Cain to go out from the presence of the Lord and then kill his brother is wicked, ridiculous, and attacks the very character of God. Uh, sir, I'd like to submit into the record Exodus 9.12, please. Quote, and the Lord hardened the, Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Hmm. Well, so. I mean, if God wants to keep you in his presence, what better way than to not let Moses leave? You know, keep Moses around. True. Also, I like how Calvinism is wicked, attacks the very character of God, 
and ridiculous. I like ridiculous <laughs> yeah. is thrown in there. It yeah. seems like just, not the yeah. most important criticism. Just the ridiculousness. <laughs> I think I would put the blasphemy up front. God is yeah, evil, wicked, and a little goofy. All right. So now that we know that Calvinism is equal parts blasphemy and heresy, we can safely say the Bible doesn't represent Calvinism, but something else. So what would the Bible look like if Calvinism were correct doctrine? Kirkland decides to try his hand at creative writing and gives us all to Genesis. Quote, <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And God said, let us make people with no free will. And then God said, we will trick them into thinking they have free will by saying of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. I like that version. That's a good yeah. version. I did too. Yeah, I like it. Kirkland says that God having foreknowledge doesn't entail predestination, something he accuses Calvinists of mixing up. Because after all, just because you have perfect knowledge that A will do X, it doesn't follow that you caused A to do X. See? You know, someone having perfect knowledge just sounds like Trump describing himself. Really? Yeah, I mean, well, you'd have to have perfect knowledge to make perfect phone calls. So I think, <laughs> I think, yeah. Nobody has better epistemology than me. All right. In this view, God is like... You, whilst watching your favorite movie, you've seen a million times. You know what's going to happen, but you didn't have any hand in the making of the movie. Quote, God knew that Judas would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver ahead of time, according to Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13. But God had no hand in making these things happen. Yeah, God's more of a gold guy anyways, let's be honest. You know, we've all heard about the New Jerusalem on the first series of Nunder called Ordinary. Come on. Yeah, if God made it happen, it would, yeah, be 30 pieces of gold. We all know that. And big pearls. Give him a bunch of big pearls put in front of your house. Like like Henry Kissinger. Yeah, the pocket of big pearl. Yeah. Of course, in the case of God and his creation, my analogy isn't quite so helpful because the movie watcher and movie maker are the same person. But we'll just ignore that for now. I have a feeling the more we ignore, the better Kirkland's case will be. So let's do it. Let's ignore away. I think that applies to most of our subjects on this show. All right, so the takeaway here is just because you are perfect and have perfect knowledge of your own design, if there's a kink in your design, it isn't your fault. I mean, God is just off the hook by definition, logical consistency be damned. Yeah, I guess the Lord just didn't work that out in his early reasoning days. Oh. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad God doesn't feel compelled like many of his creation do to actually work this all out in a way that makes sense. You know, he didn't <laughs> feel compelled to do that. And, you know, I'm glad. He does everything at his pleasure. It doesn't please him. To yeah, make sense. yeah, it didn't please him. So he didn't do it. <laughs> and with those airtight arguments that Calvinism is blasphemous, which I don't know if that's if if he really thinks that I don't know why he didn't include that in his title with that logically consistent arguments. We are done with none dare call it heresy. Part one. And we are done. <laughs> Thank you for listening to None Dare Call It Ordinary. You can find us on Twitter at NDCIO, Instagram at None Dare Call It Ordinary, and send us an email at None Dare Call It Ordinary at gmail.com. For only $1 a month, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash None Dare Call It Ordinary. For information on all our episodes, as well as links to our YouTube channel and Discord server, head over to our website at NoneDareCallItOrdinary.com. As always, we ask that you please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever your podcasts are served. Thank you.